ask the ushers to pass out a little syllabus I have created right here. We're kicking off a series called The Road Less Traveled, and I am going to do a uh, study, a week study through the book of Romans, which is a lifetime goal for me. You know, I, uh, I remember um, when I taught through the book of uh, Revelation, and we provided a syllabus, and uh, I carried through that. And I remember my uncle Ralph, he had told me, if you, we'll just pass them out over in the sides and just go through there, and uh, we got plenty of copies here. My uncle Ralph told me, he said, you can get the book of Revelation wrong, just make sure you get the book of Romans right. So we, we are going to be talking and tackling the paramount doctrinal book of the New Testament. So uh, I want to just read Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. I want to set the scene here, and then we're going to uh, work our way through it. So here, here's what the Bible says, uh, Romans 1, verse 16. Paul said this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and for the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you this morning for the grace of the Lord. I thank you for the peace of the Lord. I pray that you, God, you give me the strength, the wisdom, the ability to communicate your word. I pray, Lord, for... Uh, understanding, clarity, doctrinal purity as we tackle this subject in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen and amen. So, you know, it still amazes me that this year, early at the beginning of the year, uh, in March, I was actually in the city of Rome with my traveling companion, Joel, back there in the back row. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was just incredible. Lifetime goal of mine, never thought I'd be there. And I, here I am talking on the subject of Romans. And uh, one of the first places we visited was the catacombs of St. Calais. And I chose that catacomb because it's right along a road called the Appian Way. You can see a picture of it uh, right here. This is the actual road. And on that road, history records that Christians were put on crosses and trees and lit up like torches and crucified and killed all the way to Rome. And what they did when they had that, that you know, road with Christians killed, they were just enforcing the Roman Empire, that this is a, a Roman religion that we don't believe in Christianity. Christianity was an illegal religion in those days. And you know, there's an old saying that says, all roads lead to Rome, because it was the center of the world. Roads would go there, and on the way, you would pass by uh, you know, people that were killed. That's why the catacombs right there. They started putting graves right there. Early, the early church met underground to conceal their activities. In Sunday school, uh, you teach on the Roman's road, the plan of salvation. Has everyone ever heard of the Roman's road? It's a, it's a road uh, of salvation found in Romans 6, 7, and 8. I would say Christianity, for many people, has been a road less traveled, and the book of Romans is a road that you need to travel down. So we're going to be talking about it, and I get to do a little book study. Someone said, uh, I asked a pastor friend of mine, how do you do book studies in church? And he said, well, you should teach short books. So <laughs> Romans is not a short book, but we're going to work our way through it. Here, here's what it says in Romans chapter 1. This is Paul's greeting and appreciation. Paul, a bondservant, that's the Greek word dulius of Jesus Christ, it says he was called to be an apostle and separated to the gospel of God. You know, in these few words, what Paul is telling us by saying I'm a bondservant is that he's abandoned his rights and he's given over all control over his life to fully serve Jesus. He has totally surrendered himself to the Lord. He made an interesting statement. He began this epistle by calling it the gospel of God. And when he made that statement, what he's saying and he wants you to understand that Jesus Christ is not the founder of a new religion. He's the Savior 
for whom Israel has been waiting for for the millennium. He, he, he is the Messiah whom God gave to the Father and promised over and over again that Christianity is not something new. It's an extension of the Jewish faith culminated in the person of Jesus. It's the gospel of God. To which he says in verse 2, He promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And I love verse 4 when the Bible says that he declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. I'm telling you, man, the resurrection was an emphatic statement of Jesus and his divinity. Uh, It revealed that he had divine origins. It proved that he was perfectly holy and that he was eternal in nature. One of my favorite memories was making my way into the garden tomb in Israel because right on the door there is this verse that Jesus declared to be the Son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Man, I'm telling you, the resurrection is central to Christianity. And without the resurrection, your faith is futile, Paul said. You're still in your sins. It's the central part of everything we believe. And when Jesus rose up from the dead, he declared he's the Son of God. That's where Paul is beginning this thought right here. He's emphasizing Jesus' holiness, his divinity, and his relationship to people. Look at verse 7. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. He's just introducing it. The militant Apostle Paul, the guy who traveled the entire known world and and preached the gospel to them, is expressing his gratitude, his appreciation, his his desire to be in covenant connection with them. He he says in verse 8, he said, first, I want to thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. You know, at this point, the the gospel had been spreading throughout the Roman Empire. There was a, a time in history called Pax Romana, that's the, the Roman era of peace when God sovereignly set up to bring Jesus to the world at that time. The world was connected with one language, and there were roads that were set up through Rome. That's why it says all roads go to Rome. They were master builders. And on those roads, Paul would travel and journey and talk and teach everywhere he went, spreading the gospel. He said in verse 9 that God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. How many of you know prayer is powerful? And here, here's Paul. He's a prayer warrior. I mean, he's a powerhouse. He's preaching. He's teaching. He is having miracles take place. He's discipling people, but he's praying. I'm telling you, man, prayer is one of the greatest things. And when you pray for somebody, what you're demonstrating is your love for them. He said in verse 10, I want to make request if by some means at last now I can find a way in the will of God to come to you. You know, what's interesting is that apparently at this time, no apostle had really ever made their way to Rome yet. Paul was the first one to do it. And Peter eventually would make his way there. We were at uh, St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. That's where Peter's buried. Paul is also buried there. At that time, Rome is the center of the entire known world. And he's on his life's mission, his life's purpose, which is to take the gospel to the nations of the world. And there's no greater place for you to go than Rome itself, the center of the world at that time. That's where the disciples chose to go. That's where they found themselves crucified and killed. Uh, in, In verse 15, He said, so as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So he's not passively willing to just go to Rome. He's passionately eager to do so. There's inside of him this building frustration that longs to preach the gospel. Wherever he can go, he wants to tell them about the good news of God's Son, and he's going to the capital city to make sure people know that. 
So I'm going to spend the next eight weeks working our way through the book of Romans. And uh, I'm going to drill down in really the next two and three verses because they, they, they have so much information packed. This morning is the presentation of the gospel. I mean, what is the gospel? That's what I want to highlight today. Is, is we're, we're just going to lay out a little bit for you in this beginning section of it. The gospel is the good news. That's what it means. The good news of Jesus Christ. I don't believe that in America, we're effectively communicating the gospel today. Um, I think the evidence is that people have a hard time explaining. You know, you talk about Christianity, people will tell you, well, you know, it's so you can go to heaven or so that God, you know, save you from your sins. Or maybe some people would say that you'd have a good life. But anyone who has ever shared the gospel with others has likely felt the impulse to dilute its demands for repentance and its promise of righteousness by faith alone. It's simply not a comfortable message to preach because it contains awkward, offensive qualities that confronts the rebellion and the pride that's in the fallen human nature. Everyone's been there, man. You want to lay things out more, but somehow we find this way to dilute it bring it down. And that's what Romans is about. That's why it's important you know, it's important you walk down that road because you need to know the place that you find yourself in relationship to God. Here's the first part of the gospel. Let's look at verse 16. I'm going to hang out in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, 17, and 18. Here's what Paul said. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Someone say, I'm not ashamed. ashamed. Yeah. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also for the Greek. First thing I want to highlight here, what the gospel is, it is the power of God. The Greek word here for the power of God is the word dynamos, dunamis, where we get the idea of something that's dynamic, dynamite, explosive power. That's what's in the gospel. It's a power-packed thing. You know, uh, I've been working on my house where I was remodeling and, and working in the garage, and I was putting wires into the breaker panel. And I have learned the hard way. If you get too close to a live wire, you are going to get sapped. There's power through those things. And that's the same way it is in the gospel. It's, it's like a live wire that can bring incredible power into your life. I'm not ashamed of God's power. That's what Paul said. Such an interesting choice of words. Why did he say, I'm not ashamed of God's power? It's because he bore the marks of, of beatings in his body. I mean, he'd been places, he'd been in prison, he'd been beaten, he'd suffered for the gospel. And so here's this beaten man who comes into the city, and he's paid that price for the Lord. And, he, and he's carrying it on his body, and he said, I'm not ashamed of it. I think about what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, uh, the Son of Man uh, will be ashamed of him when he comes. If you're ashamed of Jesus, Jesus will be ashamed of you. And I, for one, don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. What he said here, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God. Uh, I'm not ashamed to testify about it. I remember one time I was working at uh, a health food store. I was just like a cashier guy. I'm sitting there, and, and this guy was telling me he had a hard day. And he came and got some groceries, and just as his way out the door, I felt this impression. And I said, hey, sir, I said, you know what you need to get through this mess is you need to know the Lord. And I told him how he changed my life, and the guy stopped. He looked at, back to me. And he said, son, you know what? You're right. I need that in my life. I'm not ashamed to testify. I'm not ashamed uh, to, to give my testimony of how God has delivered me. You know, I have friends from high school who still don't believe I'm a pastor. And they're like, what? <laughs> 
And I remember one friend of mine, she said, no, I, I know the guy I verified. It's true. <laughs> God delivered me. I'm not ashamed of deliverance. And he took me out of rebellion. He took me from a near addiction to alcohol bondage. He delivered my soul. I'm grateful for him. I'm grateful for what he's done in my life. He has set me free and broken chains in my life. I've experienced it. I'm not ashamed of the supernatural. I'm not ashamed of the Holy Spirit, God's healing power. You know, we just had some revival meetings at church. And you should have seen some of the online ads from the haters. I'm telling you, haters are everywhere. Some of the most hateful people are religious people who really don't like to see the Holy Spirit in action. I'm not ashamed of supernatural things. I'm not ashamed to say that God heals, he delivers, he can set you free, he can work in your life, he's a blessing. I'm not ashamed of it. See, the power of God is for salvation. And that word salvation is a word that doesn't just mean like sin. The word salvation right here is the Greek word soteria, and that means like every part of your life. He saved you out of the darkness and brought you into the marvelous light. And I like how 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says it. It says that your entire spirit, soul, and body will be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord. That is good news. It's good news to know that my entire being is a member or aspect of salvation. My mind, my body, my spirit man, all of that's included in God's plan of salvation. Every part of me. I've been redeemed from the curse of the law. And I've been delivered into the righteousness of God. See, the power of God is also for transformation. I, I love it when people's lives get transformed. I love to hear stories of people who had supernatural deliverances in their life. How God did something immediate. Because I know what that's like. I have been transformed. I was at Walmart the other day. And I'm walking along there and I see my buddy Mike. I did Mike's wedding. He, when I met him, he was painting for a buddy of mine. He'd just given his heart to the Lord. But he had had a severe meth addiction. He was from Butte. He was covered in tattoos. So I saw him the other day at Walmart. And, you know, he's a Raiders fan. I'm a Broncos fan. So we began to banter each other a little bit. That rascal won last week. And uh, I noticed his tattoos were di different. He'd covered all the old tattoos he had with, like, Yahweh was on him and Jesus on his neck. And, and, and so I, I looked in his eyes, man, and I saw joy and life and excitement. And I was like, Mike. You know what's amazing? It's to think about where you were and who you are now. That is the power of the gospel. A total transformation in someone's life. I saw it. It was just wonderful to have that fellowship and see a life changed. I like what the verse says. It tells us the power of God is for everyone. And I like what the Bible uses in phrases. It tells us it's for as many as. It says it's for us all. It tells us God is not a respecter of persons. Here in this verse, it said it's to the Jew first and to the Gentile. That means it's for every tribe, nation, and tongue. And what that means is the gospel is for you and it's for me. I love that. The power of God is available to you and me in the gospel. Where would you be without the gospel? Where would you be without God's saving power in your life? I love to sing that song, Where Would I Be? God only knows. Now, let me give you a second part of the gospel. Verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God. Someone say righteousness, like you're a British man. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, here's the second part of the gospel. It's not just the power of God. It's the righteousness of God. This is the theme of the book of Romans. It's a book about righteousness. Not many people are familiar with the subject of righteousness. What it means is that you have right standing with God. You can come before God. 
He accepts you. He believes in you. He's not angry at you. He cares about you. And like my friend Ted preached last week, that means you can boldly go before him. You can come into his presence. He accepts you. You, you, you can come right there in spite of sin, in spite of shame, in spite of difficulties, and because of the blood of Jesus, you have been made righteous in his sight. That is a miracle. Now, this little verse, the just shall live by faith, is a little verse with huge implications. And what I like about the Bible is, is you can find a little verse tucked away somewhere in the Old Testament that you overlook, and it becomes a major part of the New Testament. It's like the bedrock of Bible doctrine. He's quoting the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 3. The just shall live by faith. Paul took that verse and he builds on it in the New Testament. Here in Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11 and Hebrews 10.26, he's going to repeat those phrases, the just shall live by faith. Here's the thing you've got to understand about righteousness. It's by faith through grace. It, the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. God has to reveal it to you. The eyes of your understanding need to be enlightened. And what happens is in a moment, you get a supernatural glimpse of your need for a Savior. And only God can reveal that to you. Only God can show you that. It's like the scales come off of your spiritual eyes, and you see, I am a sinner, and I need the grace of God. That's first happened to me when I was a little boy. I remember being in Sunday school, and it hit me. I remember I was like, I got to get saved. I remember grabbing my sister and trying to get up there to pray for me at the altar when I was little because something in my spirit, it made sense. I remember experiencing it as a teenager when I was backslidden and rebellious. And I thought, what business have I for, for, for the Lord to accept me in my life? And you know, now that I'm a pastor and I'm 43 years old, I still have moments where I face my flaws, my failures, the struggles in my flesh, and I realize I have a need for a Savior. It's like you, you, you get this spiritual glimpse of like, man, I need God in my life. I need His righteousness. But it takes the Spirit of God to show you that. It's revealed from Him. Righteousness is also one of these things that to Christianity. This is exclusive. It's the only religion, Christianity is the only religion that teaches faith righteousness. There's no other religion in the world that does that. Abel's offering in Genesis 4 is a foreshadowing. How he took up the first of his flock and he gave it to God and he accepted it. And the thing about righteousness through faith and grace is that it is offensive to your flesh. Because you know why? You and I like to justify ourselves. That, that's why our human nature will defend itself. That's, we get defensive. It's why we get arrogant with things. It's why we think we can you know, do things in our own strength. Every other world religion is going to teach that if you just do enough good deeds, you'll be right with God. That's what Mormons teach. That's what Muslims teach. Buddhists teach if you just meditate yourself in a nirvana, it'll be all right. Hindus teach if you're good enough, you won't come back as a fly. You might come back as a dog or some other better animal. If you just would, you know, do enough good deeds, you'll be okay with God. But the Bible teaches that the just shall live by faith. Yeah. Righteousness is also positional in nature. In other words, I can't do anything to earn it. Now, it's like my children. You know, you and I are children of God, just like you have your own children. And whether I like it or not, my kids are my kids. They're mine, uh, legally. I pay taxes. On that. They, they get me tax breaks. <laughs> I'm responsible for them in a legal sense. They're mine genetically. They look like me. 
Uh, like Lydia looks just like Elizabeth. I mean, it's a little mini me. They are mine practically, which means they act like me. That's why I have one child who never shuts up. Come on, somebody. <laughs> just how it goes, man. Nothing we can do about it. Uh, they, they, my kids are my kids. They'll always be my kids. They can't earn it. That's how it is with God. When you become righteous, it's, it's a position you have. Righteousness is uh, progressive in nature as well. So your faith can grow. And, and that's what the Bible says in Second uh, Thessalonians 1. Your faith grows exceedingly. It can swell. But faith grows when I hear the word of God. I study the scriptures. I fellowship with God. His spirit is in my life. And I'm transformed and I'm growing in that. Uh, righteousness and faith begin to grow uh, like, like a relationship that you have over time. It's like being married to a spouse. The more that you spend time with them, the more you know them, the more you love them. The older my kids get, the better our relationships get. And it's the same way with God. Faith is your relationship with God. And it, it's growing all the time when you spend time with it. And faith is like a muscle that has to be exercised. Because when you go through some difficult things, when you go through trials, frustrations, difficult moments, ups and downs, that is when you see the hand of God carry you through something and that faith increases. It strengthens. It's righteousness at work. You and I are righteous in the sight of God, and it's only on the basis of faith. He's not asking you to earn it. He's not asking you to work for it. All God asks of you is that you believe it. Yes. That's the good news. You don't got to work for it. You accept it. You receive it. You, how good is this? And God says when you do that, you're righteous in his sight. How good is that? Better than you can ask or think. It's the righteousness of God. Now, third part of the gospel. This is an interesting portion of scripture. Verse 18. It tells us that the wrath of God, someone say a wrath. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Let's talk about number three here. The third part of the gospel. The mercy of God. Mercy is when you receive what you do not deserve. I have a newsflash for you. You do not deserve the mercy of God. But he gives it out to you freely. Mm. He has two sides of the gospel. Righteousness and wrath. The law and grace. Goodness and severity. Romans chapter 11. I was in the hospital one time with Elizabeth. I think, I don't know what we were down there for. And I had one of the nurses approach me. And you know, you get to talking to people, they want to find out what you do. And when you tell them that you're a pastor, some people love to have theological conversations. He was like, oh, what do you teach? Do you teach the law or do you teach grace? And I was like, well, I teach both of them, homie. Because you can't understand grace without the law, can you? And then he was like, hmm, I'm with you. <laughs> it, listen, you're going to find, when we start studying the book, you are in fact a sinner saved by grace. And you'll find... You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel, man. Two sides of a coin. That's what's revealed in these verses. We've got faith righteousness, and we've also got a little thing here called the wrath of God. Previous generations, from my experience, my observations, have overemphasized God's severity. But the generation we're currently in has overemphasized God's grace. And there is a balance. You know, the Bible is a very balanced book. That's what I love about it. When you discover a false doctrine, what you'll find is that something that gets overemphasized. Anything can get overemphasized. You can overemphasize 
tr- uh, prosperity. You can overemphasize healing. You can overemphasize sin. You can overemphasize grace. You can overemphasize eschatology. There, there's all kinds of things that people fall into where they get overemphasized. But, but Bible doctrine is balanced. That's what I love about the book. And you'll find that in the book of Romans. Things are balanced. You know, so we have mercy from God's anger. God's wrath was satisfied on the cross through Jesus when his blood was shed. Do you understand that when you put your faith in Jesus, it's like you step behind that veil of his blood. So when God's looking at you, he doesn't see that you're a sinner. He doesn't see that you're no good and worthless. He doesn't see all the stupid stuff you've done, the fights you had with your wife on your way to church. What he sees is the blood of Jesus. And that makes you righteous. I love that. We're covered from his wrath. But the Bible also teaches in Colossians chapter 3 that the wrath of God, his anger, is coming upon the sons of dis. There is hell. In other words, there's hell to pay for some of the stupid stuff people have been caught up with. I'm just telling you. There is hell to pay for the sinfulness of man. There's reasons uh, that God's wrath is revealed, and they're all in this 18th verse. the, The verse tells us that it's happening because of ungodliness. Ungodliness is like uh, wickedness, sinfulness. It's your rebellion. The problem with people is that we are rebellious. We're rebels at heart. We want our own independence. We want to do things without God's help, without God's grace. How do I know this? I have children. Children don't want my help. I'm like, don't do that. If you do that, you're going to wreck that bike. And you know what happens? They have to learn the hard way. They'll wreck things, they'll stumble, they'll trip, and I can tell them. I warn them. But it's like, man, I got this. I can do this. In my... That is what people do. People have this sense that they can get away with it and do it in their own strength without God's help. That is wickedness. Unrighteousness. It's injustice. You know, sin produces an injustice in your life. The unintended consequences of sin are injustice. Sort of like if you've ever had a one-night stand. And after that, when you thought you'd be feeling wonderful, you feel empty. There's no justice there. When you take advantage of someone and you feel guilty about it, there's an injustice that takes place. Uh, I had a, my hairdresser. She was, you know, hairdressing. She also, you know, is, is like a bartender. And she told me, she was like, man, I had to stop drinking because I've been doing it for so many years and it's just gotten boring. There's no life in it. There's no justice in it. You can sin for a while, but after a while, the, the, the cost of it will catch up to you. And I like what the verse says. It says that they will suppress truth in unrighteousness. Here's why the wrath of God is coming, for untruths, ungodliness, unrighteousness, and untruths. That's deception. You know, the thing about sin is it always looks appealing, doesn't it? And the scriptures say there's pleasure in sin for a season. It feels good to sin. I hate to tell you that. But it doesn't last, does it? It's a deception that comes along with it. Hmm. Uh, You know, the thing about the current world we're in with marketing today is they will advertise something to try to trigger your emotions. They can make partying and getting drunk look so much fun. They can, you know, make that car that you want think you have to have it. I was at... uh, Teen Challenge this week, and I was kind of ministering to one of them who used to be a car salesman. I said, how often, when you're selling cars, do people come in there and overbuy? And he said, every day. They come in with a $300 budget and walk out with an $800 a month car payment. That's what people do, man. And that's because they get caught up in a lie. Their emotions run with it. That's an untruth. That's a deception. Man, I tell you something. Satan is the master of deception. 
And he knows how to entice you. He knows how to make things look good. He knows how to appeal to your flesh. Aren't you grateful for the mercy of God? Because when you get caught up in it, God's mercy will pull you out of it. He'll give you what you don't deserve. I am grateful for the mercy of God. You need the mercy of God. Uh, you know, while we were at the catacombs there in Rome, uh, along the Appian Way, I remember uh, I met a kid from San Diego. And, uh, you know, he was a college kid, um, you know, just, just kind of hanging out. And he needed a ride back. We were going to one part of Rome, and he was kind of in that direction. So I said, why don't you just come along with us? We'll just split the, the cab here. In fact, I said, you know, don't even worry about it. We'll just take you with us. And uh, we extended mercy to him. He didn't deserve it. Now, when he got back, I, I prayed with him, and I, I shared the gospel with him. I said, I paid for your cab ride. Now you've got to listen to me. <laughs> but that's what God has done for you. This is the gospel. You don't deserve it, but God did it for you. I'm grateful for that. Let's talk about the, the, the life that you have if it's been transformed. Have you ever experienced supernatural transformation? How do you know that you've experienced supernatural transformation? Because the old you is dead. And in that place, there's a new you. And there's something amazing about that. But as we study the book, you know what we'll find out? That that person's growing. It changes. It comes alive. The new you will come alive. It's called sanctification. I can't wait to get into that and talk to you about that. You get transformed, but then God starts working on you. Maybe uh, you don't feel righteous in his sight. Not everyone does feel righteous in the eyes of God. Uh, in spite of sin and issues and problems that you have, he loves you. He cares about you. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And all you can do about that is accept it and believe it. And God accounts. That's what he did with Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed he'd have a son. And God said, you're righteous in my sight. That's the beautiful, refreshing, wonderful thing about God's mercy and grace. Maybe it's that you need mercy. Do you need mercy? You need it more than you know. I need it. And what I want to do as we close out this morning, I just want to ask God for his mercy and grace. I want to ask him for it. I want to thank him for it. And I just want to pray with you. Listen, you've heard the gospel. You don't deserve it. It can change you. It can save you from your sin. And all we have to do is come before him and just receive it. Do you believe in your heart that Jesus is the son of God? That he died for your sin and rose again. And if you believe that in your heart, and you confess that with your mouth, and that, that gets you need your mercy and it'll bring change to your life. Let's pray for the mercy of God. Father, I just thank you this morning. I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need it every day. There's a reason you said your mercy is new every morning. So, Lord, every day, every day we thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you give it to us when we don't deserve it. We just receive it. I pray, Lord, that we'd have supernatural eyesight, supernatural insight. I pray for revelation from the Holy Spirit to show us when we need it, where we need it, how we need it. Every day we need it. I thank you for the for the goodness of the Lord that leads us to repentance, that helps us follow after you. Thank you for your mercy. I want to thank you for it. I want to thank you that you have saved my life. You've changed my life. And I want to follow you. And I want to submit to you. And I want to surrender to you. Is that your prayer today? Do you want that for your life? I want you, Lord. I want your mercy. I want to know it. I want to thank you for it. Mm -hmm. In the mighty name of Jesus.
Amen, amen, amen. Listen, that's what I'm opening up with this, this series on. I am tired. We just got back from an epic camping trip. So you got the, you got the verse here. I feel the peace of the Lord, man. I feel his presence. Do you feel the presence of the Lord? Let's just stand up for a moment here and wait on him. Mm. I just thank you, Jesus. I thank you for your peace and goodness and mercy. Mm. God's goodness. Mm. All we can do is receive it. If you want prayer, the altars are open. We're here to pray for you. We love you very much. Uh, if you need to get right with the Lord, the altars are open. He loves you. He's embracing you with open arms cares about you. No, don't lose your syllabus. <laughs> I'm going to be covering the next weeks. So we'll have more of them. It's all right. We print them on cheap paper, so we'll be okay. So we'll bring them back next week. I'm going to work our way through the book of Romans. We'll have a great time. We love you all very much. You're a blessing. We'll catch you all next week. If you're visiting, I'd love to connect. God bless you.